Welcome back to episode number 104 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have back for part two of pre-planning and working with firefighters with Glenn Saraduke. As we discussed in the last episode, this is actually a recording of a training session that we had inside the Dust Safety Academy given by Glenn. In last week's podcast episode 103, we gave the actual training session itself, Glenn explaining the whole process of working with firefighters, of doing pre-planning, of what this looks like, why it's important for your facility. Uh, in this session, we're going to the Q&A that we did after the training session. So we're going to be looking at things like incident response, what does an incident command system look like, what standards are there for on-site teams from a company perspective or from the firefighters, what does an effective pre-planning document look like, what kind of training does Glenn recommend in this area, um, and how to work with fire marshals, how to work with AHAs and fire departments in more detail from his presentation. And we'll close up talking about qualifications and competencies for things like dust hazard analysis. As always, you can grab the transcripts of this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 104. We'll also include links to all of the resources that we mentioned in this episode, as well as the Dust Safety Academy, which you can also access at dustsafetyacademy.com figure out how to get access to this and more trainings there. So without further ado, we're going to go into part two with the question answer session with Glenn on pre-planning and working with firefighters. Yeah, we can, we can entertain some questions. Absolutely. I, I know there's a wide variety of facilities out there and situations and, and really we tried to just provide a primer today and a, and a kind of a kickstart to uh, the topic, but happy to either answer them today or follow up. Okay, so it's one question on um, from from Jonathan. Uh, what is your recommendation for remote sites in regards to organic firefighting? Uh, in regards to remote sites, uh, Jonathan, uh, typically you're you're going to have to look at fire brigades. Uh, response times at remote sites can be pretty lengthy, so you may need to look at uh, what they call like a fire brigade and having uh, on-site trained people to. Uh, at least stabilize the situation before you can get help from a nearby city or town. And I know that is the situation. I'm not sure what the reference to organic was, but uh, Chris, would you know what that means? Organic firefighting? I mean, my guess is that, and Jonathan can let us know. My guess is that it's uh, um, non-paid volunteer firefighters would okay. be my, my guess, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah. And Jonathan, there, there, there are standards for onsite teams. There are some NFPA standards for that. And uh you know, depending on what state you're in, um, what's what's adopted in that particular jurisdiction, some of the remote areas are, are very, uh, very inactive in terms of having a fire marshal available or somebody to talk to. So, perhaps um, email me, and I can I can maybe run down some resources for you to to kind of give you a little more uh, customized answer to your question. Another one from John uh, with the DHA requirement. By September 7th, once that's been done, who enforces that? What's the penalty of noncompliance? So, good question, John. Um, so, anything in the fire code that's required um, is, is law in that particular area. As far as, as, as who enforces that, it's, it's the fire department. But the reality is they're, they're pretty short-staffed. They're responding to, you know, car crashes and building fires and all kinds of things. So, Responsibility for compliance is is with the owner, and that's that's the way the fire code reads. And when there's an accident, 
it all comes back to the owner. It really doesn't matter if the fire department didn't enforce it. It all comes back to the owner in terms of liability. Uh, the penalty of noncompliance, you know, it can be huge. Um, if nothing's happened, they may just, you know, write you a letter and require you to, to show progress toward getting it done. But, you know, they, to me, the, the liability really is if it's not getting done and then somebody gets hurt, then you're really kind of hanging out there and somebody's gotten hurt. So um, good question, though. Uh, let me see if there's... Thanks, Glenn. I've collected these up, so I'll, I'll uh, start organizing the questions that are coming in here now. Um, we have one on, so a similar topic. Do you see uh, most sites utilize the incident command system when an event occurs? Um, what does that look like from your experience, Glenn? Yeah, in, in the urban areas, the incident command system, when, when the fire department arrives on scene, you know, they're, they're going to be the IC or the incident commander. So they're going to basically take over everything and direct activities. Uh, if you get into the more rural situations um, where the response times are long, you may have to set up your own fire brigade and have your own internal incident command system to, to manage incidents and shut valves and things like that. Uh, like that's done at refineries and, and uh, uh, large complexes like that. Um, so I think that's what your question is, but yes, but they do, they do uh, utilize that. That requirement of even the volunteer and the and, and Mike, if you want to follow up with that, just shoot me an email if I'm not addressing that correctly. So perfect. Um, we do have a comment that uh, assurance company that one of the individuals tuning in works with requires DHA by September 2020, um, which is uh, which is next week. A couple things on this pre-planning, and if you have other questions as they come into the Q and A box, um, type them in there. We'll address those. But I did have a question because I'm. I want to make sure that we highlight what this looks like. So you mentioned you showed a sheet of a diagram from a pre-planned document, but what else would be in this kind of pre-planning document besides just the, the layout and the symbols of the different elements? Like, is there anything else that should be in there? NFPA 652 um, or 1620, I'm sorry, 1620 talks about um, what those items are in different, different levels of pre-planning. Um, um, so, we, you know, we, you'd have to know the complexity of this. So for simple facilities, it's just a very simple pre-plan. For more complex, uh, where there's processes and valves and pressures, pressurized piping, that might be more complex. So is that what your question is, Chris? Yeah, exactly. Just trying to get an idea. If someone's thinking, okay, I want to do a pre-plan, um, what do I do? And, and your response is to, to look at that NFPA 1620 yep. document. 1620. And, and the other thing I would say, Chris, to that date coming up, and I know it's on everybody's mind, September 7th for a DHA, I would say it's more important to get the fire department out and start the pre-planning process immediately. And uh, that way they can, they can be aware of any immediate issues and get those resolved. And the DHA could come after that. You, at that meeting, you could tell them, hey, we're we just want to make sure you guys have got all the information, you understand our facility and the hazards, and, and we're working on the DHA. And just let them know you're working on the DHA, getting a company to come in and help you with that. And 99.9% um, of them are going to say, that's great. And we really appreciate that. But you have to, you have to be proactive with them um, because, again, it, it can fall off their radar pretty easily when they get busy with COVID-19 or other, other more pressing issues. So, it really is up to your EHS folks or insurance folks to really take the lead and make sure that they've always got that information. 
And I was going to ask that. So you did mention that some fire departments will do an annual, uh, maybe inspection of your facility or come in. But if you're a, if you're a facility EHS manager and you'd like to, to have this done, but the fire department doesn't come out, who would you recommend that they reach out to, 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 to initiate this sort of relationship where they do this pre-planning? So, so some of the consultants can do that. Some of the fire safety uh, consultants uh, have listed on the resources um, can do that. And also, if you contact uh, the International Association of Fire Chiefs and look for uh, folks and you know retired chiefs in that area, that they can kind of run interference for you. They can, you can hire somebody like that kind of on a, a part-time basis to come in and, and develop that relationship and uh, and run interference between you and the and the fire department. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, you may even find a retired person from that particular department. Uh, not an expensive endeavor, but uh, worth its weight in gold when you have, a, have an issue. We have a follow-up question on the um, incident command uh, system, I assume ICS stands for. Is there any training that you recommend, training modules, or um, that you recommend for somebody to, to look at for understanding how that should, should work? Yeah, there, there's some basic ICS training on the, the FEMA website. It's electronic, and it's, uh, you can go through and get certifications on the different ICS 400 and 200. There's different numbers. Um, so I'd recommend, I don't have that website on here, but as a follow-up, I can give you a website to look at all those classes for ICS that you can take online and get a, actually get a certificate, too. And, and I could look at those, Mike. I don't know which modules offhand would be for remote sites, but I'm, we can take a look at that and I can recommend to you. No problem. Perfect. And we'll follow up with Glenn and get those um, and include in the resource list when we have the replays up. So if you're, uh, when you get the update in Dust Safety Academy next week, it says that the replay's up. If you go there, we'll have the resources and we'll pull those from, from, uh, yeah. from this discussion. So and I should say remote sites are always, always a challenge, Chris. Um, you know, it sounds like Mike is, is involved with some remote sites. Um, again, from a medical standpoint, uh, fire and explosion standpoint, they're always a, always a challenge because you've got to look at that, how long it takes to get uh, your, your fire departments mobilized into that site. It can be 45 minutes or an hour, hour and a half. And so, um, you know, if you don't already have a team or a, a fire brigade or a trained CERT team, they call them, you know, you want to look at that and see what, what the minimum qualifications should be. And, um, and, and the thing about fire brigades and CERT teams is you want to be careful too. You want to make sure that they're properly trained um, and they don't get in over their head, that you're still, still immediately calling for the, the normal fire departments to respond. So if they get in trouble, um, they've got backup on the way. So, uh, so there's, you know, we can take a look at that, Mike. And if I know a little more about, if you email me and I know a little more about your site, I can probably give you some focused advice and, and lead you to some good resources. And we have another question coming in around this um, instant response. And the question really boils down to, do you have any tips or strategies for communication during an instance? So this could be um, liaison between the, you know, the, the fire department and the, the um, site could be, you know, extra radios on hand to, to actually have the communication. Um, just, right. yeah, where have you seen things break down and what are some ways that you recommend that uh, this communication takes place? Yeah, no, no, this is a good question, Dan. Uh, good, a good comment. Um, so when the fire department comes in and they set up their incident command, 
And if they're properly pre-planned at your site, they're going to have a list. Part of that pre-plan is they have lists of numbers of your facilities manager that knows where all the um, electrical vaults are and, and how to shut them down. So there's going to be a few people that that command that commander and that that the command post is going to have access to you guys, and whether that's physical or just by cell phone, um, they're going to need that. When you get into complex facilities like um, laboratories and clean rooms, and and I'm thinking about some of the national labs, um, they always have to have a, a few people that they they interact with from the site. Um, is it, again, even though it's pre-planned, they need that information. So um, radios, they're going to use their own radios um, typically. But, you know, if you're the facility director or EH&S and you have a radio that has access to the facility manager and some of the mechanics who can shut valves for them and help the fire department find, find things, um, yeah, I think that that's, would be part of the pre-plan what that person responds to that command center or that chief, whoever was in charge of the site uh, during the incident and helps, helps the uh, helps them to access, but but you'll be working for them. So um, they'll they'll be. They may say we don't need you. It's fine, or they may say yes, stay right here, and we'll work together. So that's that's kind of up to up to them. Yeah, the communication really is critical. I'm happy that uh, that question came in. So you need to, you need to have the knowledge to be able to communicate the right thing, <laughs> um, but then you also need to be able to communicate that thing. So I'd say the knowledge from the facility side is your dust hazard analysis. That's going to say things like, hopefully, in your emergency response section, if you have a fire in your silo, the last thing you want to do is go opening a bunch of inspection hatches and, and cause an explosion. And if that is the case, then you need to be able to warn your, your fire department team and to have um, that information be relayed. So there's, there's a knowledge part of it, and that's a lot of training we've done in DSA previously. There's this communication aspect. Ideally, communication happens before you have an incident. And this is exactly what this presentation is for. Please contact your local jurisdiction, your local fire departments, and bring them out to your site today so that they're ready. And it's important because it's going to save them time. It's going to save them from injuring their workers. It's going to save you from injuring your workers. And it really it will save product and, and save your, you know, if you have a silo that's on fire, you have a lot less chance of it falling down or getting knocked over if they can get in there and clean it up quickly. So I don't know, Glenn, if, and that's yeah, I know no, your no, response, but yeah, no, I, I would, yeah, and uh, it's excellent, Chris. Um, so Dan, just to follow up, so so I agree that communication is always always a uh, common factors um, in in problems uh, for incident response, but part of how you can you can uh, deal with that is training. So uh, one thing I didn't really say in the presentation, but I want to say it here now is is you know you conduct regular trainings with the fire department. And, and uh, it might be a mock incident. It might be a mock explosion um, in your silo and uh, let them respond and, and, and see how it works. See how ICS works and the command system, see how those radios work and, and, then, and then tune it up from there. And so that way, when it happens, you've gone through it and, and training is, is huge there. That's what I'd recommend is, is to run through it and try to do some, for some of the larger facilities on, on the call here today, I would say that you want to uh, really probably do some training incidents and uh, uh, just, just to see how it is to set up and, and have them access the facility and, you know, pretend to turn valves off. And then you have a tabletop uh, debrief after that and see what needs to be improved. 
um, so that you can learn a lot from doing those kind of, um, and, and fire departments are always up for that. They're always up for training, uh, hands-on real training to uh, improve their safety and your safety. So, so take them up on that. They'll, 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 they'll love it. Yeah, I agree. And I think we have, we have worn through our instant response questions at the moment. So if you have more, put them in the Q&A box. Um, I do have some questions here from before the session on uh, on DHAs, and and one that I that comes back actually quite a bit um, is what do I do if the authority having jurisdiction in in this case, say a fire marshal has rejected my my DHA, what are my you know next steps there? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. You know, I I, I don't know that I've seen that too many times, but I have seen. DHAs that were in the middle of uh, the process that weren't being received very well by the fire department and uh, needed to be updated or corrected. But, but I would say that up front, typically, if you're transparent with the fire department as part of the DHA, before it starts, um, you know, they're going to know who the consultant is you're using, and they're typically going to have confidence in that particular company or that, that individual to do that work. So, but if it happens, um, I would say that um, you probably need to back up and, and take a look at why it was disapproved. Was it a concern over a reactive metal that we weren't dealing with it? Or was it, was it just some punch list items they wanted to see addressed in the DHA? So typically, you can tune up that DHA to address those things. If it's something more systemic, or, uh, more critical, that they really just aren't comfortable then I think you have to go back to square one and sit down with them and in a meeting with the consultant and uh, find out what their concerns are. Again, some of those things should be done up front. You know, the way I do a DHA is we, we go in at first and we do a PowerPoint for the fire department on the new equipment, the new process, uh, the facility, what upgrades we're going to make. We, we do all that and how we're going to deal with it fire protection wise. We do all that up front in a PowerPoint in person or on Teams meetings or on uh, WebEx. And uh, so they get a chance to digest that initially. When we don't ask for approval at that point, but we wanna know, are we going down the right path? And if they say yes, then we proceed with the architect and the MEP engineers to go ahead and design the facility and then it goes in for permit. But th that normally shouldn't happen. But if it does, I I'd say uh, if it's not serious, then just update the DHA. If it is serious, then um, sit down and really listen to what what uh, um, what they have to say in terms of what they want addressed. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. It comes to the, when I gave the intro to this training. The the third reason, the second reason was to work with the authority having jurisdiction instead of against them. So instead of doing everything, you know, and then submitting it for approval, bring them in earlier in the process so that you know if they're. Some, some local jurisdictions may have a, a short list of, of people that are qualified, that they consider qualified, do a DHA. You want to make sure that your folks that you're working with are on that short list. Um, others may not have any you know, idea or clue about um, combustible yeah. dust. And you probably want to know that too, because yeah. not because you can sneak something in, but because you're going to have to be even more, even more reason to have somebody knowledgeable on your side so that you know that you're getting a safe, safe systems, um, yeah, safe regulations in place. For example, Chris, uh, you know, if you if you uh, you're in a rural jurisdiction with a volunteer department, um, and you do a complex DHA and and just submit it without any introduction or or educational component, 
I mean, it's going it's gonna, to, they're going to have trouble with it. They're going to have to call to a larger fire department, but it just, it just sets them off, off balance. And so where if you go into it transparently and say, look, here's what we're going to do. Here's here. We're going to run through this educational session on what we're doing and our proposed ways we're going to deal with it. Then you shouldn't have that problem. But, you know, some of these DHAs are, are huge. And, and you can imagine the, the fire service, depending on the department, may, even if they have the sophistication to review it, they may not have time. And so they really, really need that, that introduction and, you know, that help from the consultants. So that, that would be my recommendation there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And do you have any, if somebody is looking for a, a, a qualified person for their DHAs, I know you and I have talked behind the scenes on, qualifications versus competency versus experience. Um, just, do you have any, you know, what are you re- generally recommending to people when, when they're looking to, to hire somebody on for a dust hazard analysis? Yeah. So, so typically, um, you know, qualifications, obviously that they've done DHAs before of the type that you're, you're looking at. Um, they have the credentials to meet any kind of state requirements or, uh, fire or building department requirements, which sometimes they'll require a professional engineer to sign off on the report. Um, that's that's more the case than not. And and somebody that has has some understanding of fire departments um, in response, so they can address that that component. And you know, you really could even put that in the scope of work. You know, if you hire a consultant to do a DHA, you could put right in the scope of work. But you want them to assist with pre-planning. And, and emergency response considerations for, you know, for the project. I mean, it is required by code, but it's often not done. But you can put it right in their scope of work, so you can hold them responsible to do that. In terms of where to find companies, there's a, there's a lot of good companies that can do DHAs, probably a, a lesser number that to do the more complex ones. But um, um, if, if you email me, I can give you a list of companies. I don't want to recommend any companies here today, but um, if you email me, I can give you a list of five or six companies maybe that I have some confidence in, but that doesn't mean there's not other ones um, if they meet the qualifications. Certainly. I don't see any other questions coming in, so I think we'll leave it off at that. Um, we obviously have, if you're looking for folks that are qualified for DHAs or explosion protection, system design, um, pre-startup checks you know, at the at dustsafetyscience.com. We have a list of companies there and you can email me personally and we'll get you a list of people, providers in your area that are experienced in that as well. Yeah, um, Chris, I mean, you, you're, you're a good resource for that too. You see what's out there. You have a lot of communication with the consultants and I think you probably have a good feel for who's qualified out there and, and, and maybe who's not, you know. Yeah, it's a, unfortunately there isn't, the hard line's not drawn in the sand, but uh I, at least from our experience, we've seen what's been working and um, we can see, you know, what, what is an effective DHA, who are an effective DHA. And we're, we're working on our own recommendations and guidelines on, on how to determine whether or not somebody is a qualified person. Um, and that will be coming out over the next couple of months. And we've had input from folks like Glenn on that as well, but that, uh, that'll be coming down the pipe and we'll, we'll have that uh, inside the community as well. Um, Glenn, any parting words you want to leave anyone off on around this topic of working with fire departments, pre-planning? Yeah, I'd say that, that hopefully I've made a case for, for being transparent and, and teaming up with them early on, uh, especially in the DHA process. And again, um, you know, put that right in the scope of work. Tell the consultant that's what you expect. You expect them to really educate the, uh, the fire department and the building department 
And uh, again, if they do that, the project will go smooth. Um, uh, inspectors will come out, they'll know what they're looking for, you'll get approvals. Um, it really smooths things out. So I would say that that's, that's the way to, to guide the consultant. And I think any of the major consultants would be happy to do that. So, and with that, again, build a relationship, um, you know, it protects everybody, protects your equipment, uh, minimizes your downtime. And uh, with that, I'd say uh, good luck out there. And if you have questions, um, please send them to Chris or myself and we'll, we'll get them answered for you. Yes. And we'll have, um, if you're watching the replay of this, we'll have Glenn's information down below. Um, you can contact him. We'll also pull out these resources that we mentioned and put those um, where the replay is as well. If you're watching live, email will come out next week when this is up and you can get the resources there. So say thank you, Glenn. I'll say thank you to everyone who's tuned in here. Um, and everyone have a, a good weekend ahead coming into the, the fall months. Hopefully it's not cooling down too much out there wherever you are in the world. Um, or heating up depending on if you're on the other side of the world. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Thanks, Glenn. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. I hope you really enjoyed going through that question and answer session after the training with Glenn. I know I really enjoyed going through the training inside the Dust Safety Academy and also going through um, back listening to this training again through the last podcast episodes. In this episode, we talked through more detail on what pre-planning looks like, um, lots of questions around how to respond to a fire and setting up your incident response, setting up your um, incident command systems, what kind of regulations and standards are there, um, and what to do with AHAs when you have difficulties getting your dust hazard analysis through. And that naturally led to things like qualifications for folks that are performing DHAs and what is a qualified person. As always, we'll create nice PDF transcripts of this podcast episode, which you can download at dustsafetyscience.com slash 104. That'll be a nice PDF download. You can download to your computer, control F, and find the part of the conversation that you want to read about more. We'll also have links to all the resources that we mentioned in this episode and links to the Dust Safety Academy, which is at dustsafetyacademy.com. We're going to access to more trainings like this with Glenn and other experts in the field of combustible dust safety. So I want to say, as always, thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. And I want to thank you for everything you're doing for industries handling combustible dust around the world, making them safer every day.